Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Melissa Kane, political analyst for CBS San Francisco and your moderator for today's program. 2016 will be one of the most historic years in American politics. It marks the potential for the first female president of the United States and the 100th anniversary of the first woman elected to Congress. At the centennial of the first woman elected to Congress, which was actually three years before women legally earned the right to vote, uh, their presence and influence in Washington has reached a tipping point that affects not only the inner workings of the federal government, but also directly influences how Americans live and work. And against that backdrop, it is my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Jay Newton-Small. She's a Time Magazine political correspondent and the author of the new book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. Jay joined Time in 2007 to cover the Democratic side of the 2008 presidential campaign, traveling with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. She has also covered the White House, Congress, the 2012 Republican presidential campaign, and foreign policy. She's been on assignment for Time in Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Haiti, Indonesia, Australia, Canada, and Europe. Doesn't your passport feel weird now? (laughs) I know I do. Uh, Before joining Time, she covered the White House and Congress for Bloomberg News, including the 2004 presidential campaign. Jay holds a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University and a bachelor's in international relations and art history from Tufts University. She's the daughter of two United Nations diplomats and grew up living in such fabulous places as Asia, Africa, and Europe. So everyone, please welcome Jay Newton-Small. Thank you again to Melissa and to the Commonwealth Club for having me here tonight. Um, So I I first got the idea for Broad Influence about two and a half years ago, and I was writing a story for Time um, about the women of the Senate coming together during the government shutdown to restart the negotiations to reopen the government when none of the men would talk to each other. Um, And when I first wrote that story, it's actually funny. Um, I wrote the headline in the in the sort of we have this you know system digitally where we lay out the magazine, and I wrote the headline for the story thinking that my editor would change it because it was way too snarky, and I was kind of actually shocked to realize when I opened up the magazine and I looked at the story and I realized he'd left the actual title in that I put, which was "Women are the only adults left in Washington." <laughs> um, so. Um, 
I had a lot of interest in writing a book out of that episode, but most of the women of the Senate were already writing their own books and they didn't need one from me. But what interested me was that it was the first time that the women had reached 20% in the Senate and they actually chaired um, more than half of the committees. So 11 out of the 20 committees were either had a ranking Republican, which is the top Republican or Democratic chair. And they had a huge impact on that Senate. They ended up in, you know, that Senate was one of the most unproductive in history. And yet the few pieces of legislation that passed the Senate that session um, were were actually authored by women. So they ended up producing 75% of the legislation that passed that session. So as someone who'd covered that, you know, Congress for the better part of 15 years, you could feel the tangible difference, the tipping point that was made when when you had that 20% women in Congress. Um, I had a lot of mail, actually, that came from that particular story. And to understand, it's actually kind of hard to find us as Time Magazine writers. Like, all of our mail goes to New York and usually gets processed in our letters department, and and, and then it comes to us as writers. And, um, And... I had a fair amount of mail for other stories that I've done. And to give you perspective on that, I've written two cover stories on Sarah Palin. Um, and, and I actually had more mail on this particular story about the women of the Senate than any other story I'd ever written. And I had a lot of women writing to me from across the country saying, wow, it's so great to hear that women are finally making an impact. And a lot of them said to me, you know what? Like, I have a similar, had similar experiences in my own, in my own sort of career. So I had a woman write to me who was in the Navy who had said um, that she had been on Navy ships when uh, they were still doing trial and error, trying to figure out how many women should be on a ship. So the Navy was uh, required to integrate in 1973 as part of a Supreme Court decision. And their first attempts at immigration with, at integration with women were completely disastrous. Um, They essentially had a handful of women or one woman or two women. It was uncomfortable for everybody involved. It was just bad, you know, bad, (laughs) bad decisions were made on a lot of levels. And through trial and error, the Navy actually came up with the idea of critical mass. So some, they now mandate on all of their ships a minimum of 20% um, with a goal of 25% of women on every ship because they realized that with critical mass, with, with officers going in first, because you had to teach the rank and file to respect women, to answer women's commands, um, and then rank and file followed, uh, that that was the best way to bring women into the system. And once you reached this critical mass tipping point, the entire workforce changed. The entire sort of feeling of the room changed. And women went from feeling really awkward, really weird, apart, separate tokens, kind of whatever it was, to just being one of the crowd, like one of anybody, you know, weighing in and talking about things and having their opinions heard like anybody else. Um, And this sort of phenomenon, critical mass, and no, I don't mean critical mass in like the strange California, San Francisco sense where you have lots of bike riders on the road, which I was explained to, somebody explained to me that today. (laughs) But like critical mass in the scientific sense. Um, So that comes from actually, that, that, that idea comes from science. And it is um, at the point at which a nuclear explosion cannot be stopped, right? Or any kind of chain reaction cannot be stopped. And something is inevitably going to go, boom. Um, And so critical mass has long been applied to sociology, where you have, for example, when they integrated the schools in the South during civil rights, the government required a quote-unquote critical mass of a minimum of 20% of minority students in order for the school to feel somewhat normal. 
So I got really interested in this idea of critical mass and people, you know, making a difference in the workforce. And so I began to explore all the different areas in which critical mass was being reached in the workforce. It turns out that in all three branches of the government, we are reaching critical mass right now. So 20% of Congress, 30% of the administration, when you look at civil service employees, um, higher level civil service employees and political appointees, and 35% of the federal bench are women. In fact, 40% of state uh, judges are women. So it's um it's actually been really interesting to see how the how much progress the private sector has made or the public sector has made. The private sector is a different story. They actually have lagged behind. Um, they've been stalled at about 17% corporate board representation and about 20 to 21% executive suite representation for about the last decade. Um, and so I was curious to understand why the public sector was doing better than the private sector. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for this. Partly is because public sector um, has much stronger unions to help protect women coming back from child um, from child leave. Part of it is because a lot of women self-select to go into the public sector because um, they want to feel like they're making the world a better place and they can better justify to themselves why they want to miss that kid's soccer game um, or miss like you know picking up their kid from school or whatever it is because they are there doing something for the future of their children. Um, but the number one factor is actually voters. They have different bosses. So in the private sector, you're only going to get promoted by your mostly, frankly, male and white bosses. In the public sector, you have millions and millions and millions of women who vote. In fact, women make up 53% of the voting electorate, and they vote 10% more than men do in every election. So they actually have swung every election since Ronald Reagan. So every person, every man that's elected by these women voters know that they have to answer to them, and they have to appoint women to certain positions and they have to show that they are furthering the careers of women. So it's made, and also finally, on-ramping is easier for women in the, in the public sector. And there's a great story I love. New Hampshire is um, the most representative democracy in America. I don't know if you know this. Um, but its lower house has um, 400 members representing about 3 million New Hampshireites, which means they represent about 10 people each. Um, and um, it's a very small leap for women to make from running from school board to running for state legislature. Um, and 35 states in America have state legislatures like New Hampshire that are part-time jobs, which makes it a lot easier for women to become a local representative. And then as their children, especially women of kids, and as their kids get older, they start to take on more responsibility. They can chair committees. They can run for higher office. So if you take just New Hampshire, for example, um, something like... In the last five years alone, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, half the state senate, and the entire congressional delegation have been women. Um, and so you can see the impact that it's having in the public sector. Um, the biggest hurdle to, frankly, women in the private, in, in, in entering the workforce is the executive office. And so I have a chapter that looks at that, and particularly the star of the chapter is someone I'm sure you're all familiar with, Hillary Clinton, who I interviewed for the book. Um, and it looks at why, so everything that helps women get elected to boards, helps women um, be put into legislatures or group courts, that sense of uh, how collaborative women are, how they look for win-win scenarios. Um, all of those sort of strengths are actually weaknesses when they try to get into executive offices. Um, so executive offices, the voters and, and bosses perceive, or like people who are appointing people as CEOs, perceive them as win-lose scenario situations and, they, and command and control decision-making where one person is making the decisions down from the top. And women are perceived, rightly or wrongly so, as being weaker at these kinds of decisions. Um, and so it's a lot harder 
harder for women to breach this final sort of glass ceiling of getting into executive offices. Um, so you have less than 5% of America's Fortune 1000 companies, our CEOs are women. Um, only 6% of our governors, or sorry, 12% of our governors, six of them are women. Um, and uh, less than 17, I think something like 17% of our mayors are women. Um, and that is because executive office is so difficult. Women have to prove that they're capable at command decision-making and win-lose, win-loss decision-making in order to in order to be accepted for the job. And that's an incredibly tough needle to thread if you also want to remain likable and electable and still pass the want to have a beer with you test, right? Um, and so I think you're sort of seeing this in this in the election that we have right now with Hillary Clinton, where you have, um, you know, how do you portray that you're capable and that you're, you know, pragmatic and then you're a good decision maker, but also passionate? How do you show that you're passionate and when you're a woman and you can't yell? And because when you yell, you come off as shrill. Um, and these are all sort of boxes that women face when running for executive office. Um, but there is good news. And I think that, you know, I sort of end the book and, and, and this is, you know, and then we'll move on to questions pretty quickly. Um, looking at the future. And um, I'm at the sort of very upper cusp of the millennial generation, sort of Gen X millennial. And the hallmark of our generation is um, the idea that we were born into the world believing in equality of the sexes, like that literally is our hallmark of a generation. And so a lot of millennials, um, you know, they well, going back to Hillary, don't understand why Hillary has to be president, right? Like they, they just think, of course, there'll be a female president in our lifetime. Why does it have to be her? And she doesn't do a good enough job explaining the difference she would make for, for millennial women or m women in general. Um, but and it's an interesting in looking towards the millennial generation in that they have a much better sense of, you know, as they're reaching into the sort of upper levels of the workforce and like in my generation, um, that this sort of equality that we were born assuming, they're realizing doesn't actually exist. And there's this really fascinating feminist movement that's going on right now with millennials where you have Taylor Swift standing up at the Grammys demanding recognition. Or you have Jennifer Lawrence saying, I want equal pay, this is ridiculous. Um, or you have Lena Dunham starting the Lenny newsletters talking about women's issues or um, Hermione Granger, Emma Watson starting the feminist book club. Um, and so you have this whole sort of movement of women who are beginning to realize that the workforce isn't what they imagined. And you also have a movement of men. And I think particularly San Francisco is apt for this, a movement of millennial men who are saying, I want to be a lot more involved in my child's future. So, you know, like, and for the first time ever in the United States, 30% of kindergartners' first contacts are fathers, not mothers. Um, and you have a whole generation of men, particularly in Silicon Valley, who are demanding paternity leave, who are demanding flexible working hours so they can go to their kids' soccer games. And because it's only as men take on more responsibilities at home that women will take on more responsibilities in the workforce. And we are actually nearing this sort of cusp where that's going to become an imperative. Women have only really entered the workforce when, they, when the economy demanded it. So remember in World War II, Rosie the Riveter, um, it was, we survived World War II, economically speaking, because women came in and built those airplanes, built those ships, brought in those crops. And without them, the economy would have collapsed. But it wasn't until 1970 that all of the laws banning married women from working were fully repealed. And it won't be until our economy fully demands it that women will fully be brought into the workforce. And we're actually closer to that than you think. 
We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. So by 19, by, by 2030, the baby boomer generation will be fully like aged out of the workforce and the United States will be short 26 million workers. That's actually kind of hard to conceive right now, given the recession that we just went through and, and how we're still struggling with employment, but we are facing a demographic cliff. The United States, um, you know, has a lot of different roads, roads that they can take here to fill that 26 million worker shortfall. One, you can bring in more immigration. That's hard to imagine with this Congress, frankly. Um, two, you can bring women up to full employment. And by doing so, you almost completely fill that, short, that shortfall. That, that fills the gap by 23 million workers. So, and, it, and we are already there in terms of training, like women already account for 50% of college degrees and 60% of graduate degrees. So we have the training to do it. We're just not using those skills. Um, and, but it's not going to happen naturally. We're going to have to do something to bring women into the workforce because it, you know, it, it's just not an, it's the, the natural sort of existence of the economy is not going to do it. So the other thing we what we can do, then there are again many examples here that we could follow. Is one you could do what Europe has done and institute quotas because they've reached this demographic cliff ahead of us. Again, Congress is very unlikely to impose quotas in this sense. Or two, you can do a kind of public-private partnership, and that's been very successful in Canada and in the UK and places like that, um, where they've done something like the 30% Club, which in Canada and the UK is a, is a public-private partnership which. Um, seeks to get women 30, at least represented by 30, um, 30% in corporate boards and also in the executive workforce. Um, but the best example I found was this kind of unfortunately named group called the Male Champions for Change in Australia. <laughs> um, now it is, um, but I actually think it is some, to some degree kind of an apt name because you have to bring men into this process in order to get women into the process too. You can't always rely on the few handful of women that have succeeded, the f- less than 5% of CEOs and of the Fortune 1000 companies or the potential maybe president that we may have in order to bring all these women up. You have to get men engaged in this process, especially male CEOs. And when you have men engaged in the process, as Australia has shown with the male champions for change, that it's actually incredibly successful 
successful. So six years ago, Australia reached the same demographic cliff that we are reaching very imminently. And they basically challenged all these CEOs to very transparently report how many women they were recruiting, how many women they were training, how many women they were retaining after they left to have kids and brought back. And when they didn't reach their goals, they were very publicly shamed <laughs> like by the prime minister, by the press. And I can tell you the Australian press, they're not nice people. <laughs> and so, and it was incredibly effective. Their workforce now, their executive workforce is 47% women. And that's up from almost half that. Um, they have more than tripled their number of women on corporate boards. And to give you an idea of how much women have permeated into their sector, something like 25 to 30% now of minors in, in Australia Australia are women. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon. And I think something that the next president, no matter whom he or she may be, will have to tackle. And with that, I'm going to open it up to your questions. Okay. Uh, uh, many thanks to Jay Newton-Small, political reporter for Time Magazine and author of the new book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And now we will move to the question period. The first thing, we have an audience question, and it's also my question, which is, um, I love the word broad. Uh, <laughs> how did you come to, uh, to choose it? And it's loaded a bit. Um, the question is... Uh, you help to reclaim the word broad with your title. How can we use, how can women use language to empower themselves? That's a great question. Um, so I, um, originally the idea for the word broad, for the title broad influence was, um, came up, somebody at time came up with it actually. And my publisher was really leery to use it. They thought, well, it's really insulting to women. Like, can you really actually use the word broad? Um, and I kind of love the idea of reclaiming it. And I fought really hard to do it up until really the last minute up until like, I think this book actually, I think was originally shopped under the title of female equation, which is terrible. Um, and so, um, I really argued for broad because I thought thought it was such a much more fun title. Um, so the word broad was a Dickensian word from the 1800s um, that was actually a pejorative word used for women because they had broad hips. Well, of course we have broad hips. We bear children. <laughs> and I think that's something that we should be proud of, not ashamed of. And But it was such a bad word for so many years that in the 1960s, women actually lobbied the Olympics Committee to change the name of the broad jump to the long jump because it was so insulting. Um, but these days, I think we are beginning to reclaim the word um, from broad, you know, so you have not only my title, Broad Influence, which is obviously double entendre, but you have um, Broadly, which is uh, fortune, no, Broadly is vices. So Broad uh, Vice has a newsletter called Broadly, it's for women. You also have the Broad Sheet, which is Fortune Magazine's newsletter for women, and um, Broad City. Broad City, that's it. Comedy Central is Broad City, which is a, it was a great show about broads. Um, and I kind of love the idea of reclaiming words as women. And I wrote about this for Time this week, um, where I talked about how I was really surprised as an author that there's there's a lot of blowback about me using the word female to describe like female legislators or female politicians. And I use the word female because it's actually grammatically incorrect to say women politicians or women legislators, legislators because women is a noun, not an adjective. Um, it turns out, especially amongst African-American communities these days, that female is a huge pejorative word. Um, that it's like a synonymous with a female dog and they kind of, and then therefore bitch. I'm not sure if I can say that. Um, <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, it's more, it's more and more sort of seen as a very negative word. And I argued that like, 
God, if, if every single word that you use to describe women, from female to broad to woman itself, is a pejorative word, I mean, how, why is it that we have no words to describe ourselves as a sex that is not that are not pejorative, I mean, that are not insulting? We have to begin to reclaim a lot of these words. We have to begin to say and draw the line and say, no, I'm going to use the word female in a positive, in a positive way. I want to use the word broad in a positive way. Or as Sheryl Sandberg has argued, I want to, she wants to use the word bossy in a great way. Like women leaders can be bossy in a very positive way. Um, so I think it's time that we really begin as women to say, on, on like a language front, let's like take a stand and reclaim some of these words for ourselves. Well, to, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, sort of along those lines, it does seem that anytime you sort of associate something with women, it becomes, it backfires, right? Um, and so we even think about in American history, whenever there have been these these efforts to sort of uh, hold women up as the more pious of the sexes, then that's the excuse for not letting us vote because why would you want to engage in this vulgarity of public life? Because you are the, you are the hearth keepers and you are the, the more moral of the, of the genders. And so in your book, though, you write a lot about how women are more empathetic and, um, and more consensus building. Do you worry that that, can, that somehow would, would backfire on us? In, in the sense of keeping us out of positions of, of executive power or military power where there are these more hierarchical individualistic requirements. Absolutely. I mean, you can't say that every woman is the same, right? And I think it's impossible. Like, there, of course, there are women who are great at command decision making. There, there are women who are really, you know, good at risk taking and other things. I mean, but there are a lot of attributes that, generally speaking, studies show women are stronger at, like consensus building. Um, women tend to be more risk adverse. So I have a chapter that looks at Wall Street, for example, that um, posits the idea, which is not mine that I originally posited, but I, I sort of borrowed from a, from Christine Lagarde and others, that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, would the financial crisis have happened? Um, and <laughs> the general consensus is no, it wouldn't have happened <laughs> because women are much more risk adverse than men. So, you know, women, um, that's why 97% of microfinance funding around the world is done to women rather than men because they don't go off and gamble the money away and drink it away. They actually very responsibly spend it on their kids and like what they're supposed to invest it in. Um, women, generally speaking, there's amazing studies that have been done by Catalyst and others on corporate boards where women actually so over-prepare for board meetings that they get, like on average, when you have more than 30% women on boards, it's studies have shown that the male board members have to come to the board meeting better prepared than, than when there are less women on the board because otherwise they lose, they like lag behind in the conversation. <laughs> and so um, generally, I mean, women are, and in this sense, you know, they are much more leery of making decisions that are uninformed, underinformed, right? Like they always want more information and to some degree it does hinder them. So there's an old wives tale that you have to ask a woman seven times to run for office. I don't know if it's seven times Emily's list and others have disputed this fact or this idea Idea, but it's certainly more than men. I mean, you ask a man to run for office and before you even finish the sentence, the man's like, yeah, I'm in, you know? <laughs> and like, you ask a woman to run for office and the woman's like, whoa, I need to read like 15 policy briefing books, like in case anybody ever asks me about like anything from global warming to nuclear policy, like I need to like, you know, figure out how to fundraise, I need to figure out my family, like I have all these contingencies before they even imagine to begin to run for office. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that is, you know, 
very much like the way most women, I mean, at least in studies and, and anecdotally of, and all the members I've spoken to have been. Um, you cite to a study as well a, a, about men in testosterone sort of <laughs> increasingly taking risks. You want to talk about that a bit? This is a great study. It was actually a book um, and, and it's, it's, it's all in the end notes of the book. So I, I was very painfully, painstakingly voluminous about the end notes because I wanted women to have lots of studies to Because cite. you do extra research. Yeah, extra research yeah, and everything else. They actually had to, <laughs> they actually had to shrink the font of my end notes in order for all of them to fit in. But um, so there was this great study by this guy named Dr. John Coates who is a, um, a neuroscientist at Cambridge, who was a banker um, at, uh, at Goldman Sachs and then Bear Stearns during the sort of 2001 dot-com bubble when it was bursting in London. And he was sort of shocked to see all these men around him act in completely irrational ways. And he didn't understand why they were doing these things. And so he went back to, um, went back to school, got a degree in neuroscience, and then basically did this study where he swabbed um, male bankers' mouths every morning um, and tested their testosterone levels and then, judged, then, and then judged their trading off of that. Turned out the more testosterone they had, the riskier the trades they did. And he posited that men actually created financial bubbles because the more testosterone you had, and there's this thing called the winner's cycle, where when you win off of these riskier and riskier bets, the, riskier, the, the more your testosterone you have, it compounds, right? Because you've won, you get more testosterone and more testosterone. And when you're in a room that's full of only men, that double compounds it, right? So women, just by being in the room, secrete estrogen, which actually mitigates the effects of, of testosterone. So if there were literally just more women in the room, like not even as traders, but just physically present, they would be less risky, right? Like <laughs> all those pheromones going out, right? Like, <laughs> um, and then on the downside, he, he actually found that, and I'm going to massacre these words because I always forget them. Men secrete oxytocin, something, oxytox, oxytocin, something like that. I can't remember. Oxytocin, oxytocin, thank yeah. you. Men secrete oxytocin, which is a freezing agent. So they would freeze and they would not sell when they were supposed to sell because the market was crashing. And women, and I forget the name of the, 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 the hormone, but it's in the book, women secrete the antidote to that. So they would actually, just by having more women in the room, they would sell when they're supposed to sell. So, so he posited, Dr. John Coates posited, that the existence of financial bubbles would actually be completely wiped out by just having more women physically on trading floors. <laughs> and, and there was some evidence for that in the, in the, um, the Icelandic financial crisis, yes. right, where you saw just a number of banks totally uh, sort of disintegrate in Iceland, but, but one survived. Yeah, so our door, which is the, this, this group of women who saw all these men making crazy bets in Iceland and they were like, you guys are insane. This isn't going to work. Group of women like sort of brand, like branched themselves off. And this was during the, when, when the market was still going up and up and up in Iceland. They were very conservative. They were like, we're not going to do those crazy things that the men are going to do. And they were the, literally the only bank left standing in Iceland after the crisis because they didn't make any of the risky bets that their male counterparts made. And they were the, like, I mean, I'm not kidding, the only bank left standing in Iceland after that crisis. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. Um, and it actually so inspired the Icelandic government that they ended up electing a female prime minister <laughs> and like all of these female members of their parliament because they were like, they saw the difference that, that having women made. So it was really interesting. Now, when we do, do we let men off the hook when we do things like that by saying, you know, well, you, you, you just, you and your testosterone volcanoes <laughs> that are happening and you obviously you just need to put some women in there. But I mean, could, can, can, should we just be expecting more or requiring more from them and more responsible behavior from them rather than and I'm not saying that's what your book argues which it does not at all but I just made a study like that I worry that it's you know that, that we're just saying oh well the flip side of the fact that women are more consensus building and less and less likely to be egotistical is that you know men kind of get to do that because you can say oh well that's kind of what they do well, I think I think it makes it argues for group decision making right so mm-hmm. I mean almost every study on the planet shows that when you have a very homogenous group of people making make, making decisions the decisions are incredibly narrow you ha- the broader the group the decision the broader the group of people making the decisions and that is whether it's by gender or by race or by anything the better the decision making you're going to have because you think of more contingencies and so Ernst and Young did this really fascinating um, study it was a little bit sort of mean they they, they um, had 88,000 accounting teams around the world they didn't tell them they were studying them um, and they they looked at their gender mix-ups and 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 how they performed by gender um, and they found that the the groups that had more women in them um, at least 30% women in them and they didn't have enough women to study it like above 50%, but they found that the groups that had more women and more diversity in them performed much, much better than the homogenous groups. And so it it led them to essentially um, do a company-wide policy of a a minimum threshold of at least 30% women in all their accounting teams because they perform, they so outperformed the other teams. Well, I mean, on that point, we have an audience question about the fact. So your book, of course, centers on gender, of course, but um, but issues of class and race, of course, are also really important. To what extent are should we be pushing for more, uh, you know, inclusiveness uh, on that front as well in terms of a, is there is the 20 percent critical mass? applicable to these other groups as well? Absolutely. Like I mentioned, you know, when they were desegregating schools, like for race, it's, it's absolutely important. I mean, I'm a woman of color and I believe strongly that there should be all kinds of voices in every room, whether it's a newsroom or a board or, and you know, uh, like a legislature, because just having those different perspectives and different personalities brings so much to the table. It's so important. I mean, like think about, and this was like one of the, one of the most um, sort of powerful moments for me as someone who didn't know the history of this before I wrote the book. But if you think about the history of our, of women in the, in the Senate and the legislature, before women began a sustained pluralistic presence in the U S Senate, um, which began in 1992, um, there was no violence against women act. There were no, there was no, the, the funding for breast cancer was at $100,000 a year. It is now a thousandfold, right? Like, because women came into the government. All medical testing and all medical research was only done on male subjects, 
not women subjects, even though our physiologies are completely different. So it took bringing women into government to get them to change the laws to do testing on women, all right? Um, there, was, there was no state health insurance fund. There was, I mean, there was like, there, I mean, there was no, um, like, I mean, meals for wheels. There was like a ton of things that like Congress has passed in the last 30 years as women have come in to that workforce that has completely changed the way we govern. Think about judges, same thing. Like women judges as they've come in, uh, how how much they have changed that sort of whole sector where it used to be divorce was like going to war with each other. Now it's like they have family corners and playgrounds and like, you know, and there's arbitration and like, and they try to like put the kids first. Um, they have all kinds of rehab, you know, and all kinds of like counseling that exists, all these extrajudicial solutions that have, I mean, I'm not saying it's only women judges that have done this, but they have the, the growth of those programs outside, looking for outside of the sort of law and order kind of punishment resources have grown with the presence of female judges on the bench. So it's really amazing in all these sectors how you think of the, the impact women have had and how things were before and how things can still change enormously in all the sectors where women haven't fully breached. Let me take a quick moment here to give a notice to the listeners at home. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. And our guest today is Time Magazine political correspondent Jay Newton-Small. And we're talking about the influence of women in politics and in business. And we're about to talk a little bit more about the strange presidential race of 2016. I'm Melissa Kane of CBS San Francisco. I'm your moderator for the program. You can hear the Commonwealth Club programs on the radio or catch up with program videos on the club's YouTube channel. Now, earlier, you said one of the one of the ways to try and achieve parity is, of course, to measure uh, to measure it and sort of name it and shame it, as they've done maybe in Australia. We have an audience question that says, um, "What do you make of millennials who refuse to check the box in terms of gender and race and ethnicity on job applications, et cetera, because maybe they feel like they're in a a post identification world, or it's they don't want to be you know classified that way. What do you what do you do with those guys if if you're trying to to measure this issue? So millennials believe in this thing called intersection. Um, and so you're not defined by one thing. It's not defined, you're not defined by your race or by your gender, but you're an intersection of race, of gender, of sexual preference. Um, that can get a little overboard. I remember being at Harvard where like people were like, you have to self-identify before you speak. So I self-identify as a she, like so that people know what right pronouns to use for you in case just by accident you might want to call me a he. Um, and so like, <laughs> um, even in San Francisco, that's like, wow. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's common practice in San Francisco. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, so the, it is this thing where it, like we are a complex crazy world. I mean, I'm a mixture between my Australian dad and my um, Chinese Malaysian mom, you know, who met in Zambia and married in Malawi, right? Like it is a very weird, like I'm a very weird mix. Um, and and I'm, I was born in America, so I'm an American and frankly an anchor baby because I gave my parents nas nationality. Um, <gasps> <laughs> I used to tell John McCain that a lot. He was like, he used to shake his head at me. Anyway, um, so um but it's, you know, we are a very melting pot country and to define ourselves by one thing, I get that as a millennial, like I get that we don't want to be like one thing. I am not defined by just my gender or my race or, you know, my age or anything else. Um, but I do think that it's important to, um, and I, and I do think our, my generation does a bad generation of um, doing its homework, mm. you know, and understanding the context of things and understanding the context of history. So I, I wrote much of this book at Harvard um, where I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics and I had these eight amazing research assistants who basically 
I, this book would not exist if it weren't for their help. Um, and I taught a seminar that was um, basically based off of the book as I was writing it. And it was amazing to me to see all these kids come into the classroom every day and just having no concept of like anything having to do with like women's history. Right. And so the, the one class that really surprised me was the, the executive class. And we talked about Hillary Clinton and all these millennials came in and they were like, and I was like, isn't it amazing that women couldn't really wear pants to work in the professional workforce before Hillary Clinton wore pants as the first lady. And all my students were like, wait, what? Mm. Like, really? Like, and I was like, yeah, isn't that crazy? You know? And they were like, <laughs> and they were like, they were like, I had no idea. And I think part of the problem with Hillary is that she doesn't explain at all to millennials why she would be, you know, represent them differently, why she would be a good president. I had this um, amazing 22-year-old that I interviewed in, uh, in New Hampshire when I was covering the New Hampshire primary a few months ago. Who was, we were at a Bernie event, and she was telling me why she was going to vote for Bernie. And she'd been to Hillary events, and she'd been to Bernie events. And she was like, if you think of going to a political event as going on a first date, and you go to a Bernie event and he like yells at you and you're like, yeah. And he like is super passionate and he like, and he, t and he and it's like revolution and he sweeps you off your feet and you're going to like change the world. And, and it's like free college and free healthcare and you like leave and you're so fired up and you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then you go on a date with Hillary and it's like going on a date with an actuary. You know, she's like, <laughs> she's like talking about like saving for college and mortgage payments and like all these things that, you know, are really important, but like are really boring, you know, and like, and that's not inspiring to a 22 year old. And I totally get that why you would vote for Bernie and not Hillary and Hillary never, you know, she, she telegraphs all the time, um, you know, like, oh, I went to Beijing and I talked about how women's rights were human rights. And you're like, well, to every millennial woman, you're like, yeah, Duh. Like mm -hmm. women's rights are, of course, human rights. Like, and they don't understand the context of it. They don't get that before she said that in history, women's rights really weren't women's <laughs> human rights. Like mm -hmm. there wasn't this connection. And they have these t-shirts that the campaign sells of like women in like pantsuits. And, and, and nobody gets that, like, that you couldn't wear pants to work before Hillary. Like, right. And so they never explain it. They telegraph it, but she never quite drives home the history of like how she's been on the forefront of this and how she would govern differently as a woman and, and why she would be a better representative than any other, any other man in, in the campaign. And that's her lack. I mean, she doesn't really make herself understood by millennial women. And I think that that's, that's sad. Well, the thing is, though, I mean, if she were to, you know, campaign more as a woman to say this is I will I will govern this way because I'm female. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of a problem if she said, oh, I, I'll be more conciliatory Then people go, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. Or I'll listen to the other side. No, 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 no. That's not what we're looking for. I mean, isn't hasn't compromise become such a dirty word that if she were to say I will be, uh, you know, a more of an intelligent uh, risk averse compromiser, that people would run for the door. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that's true. I mean, when I wrote the book and I interviewed, when I interviewed Hillary, and I did interview Hillary for it, and she, she makes a powerful case on how she would govern differently. At least she did to me, but I've never heard her say it publicly elsewhere. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that she doesn't make this case more forcefully. And maybe you're right. Maybe she worries about putting off male voters. Maybe she worries about, um, you know, being too feminine. I do think that she's already broken through some of the barriers, at least, that she that existed in in 07 and 08. I mean, I, I remember covering her in 07 and 08, and I I remember in, in that campaign she ran basically as a man. I mean, she she never talked about her femininity. She never talked about the historic nature of her campaign. She was very um, 
I remember, in fact, like in, when she in, in New Hampshire, when it looked like she was losing and she teared up on the campaign trail. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And um, and every and like and Mark Penn that night, who was her chief strategist, just lost it and was like, you've lost not only have you lost the race, you've lost like your 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 career. Women cannot cry on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. People will think you're too emotional. People will say you can't have your finger on the button at that time of the month and be president, right? Like people will say it's a disqualifying thing. And lo and behold, you know, she, she got a huge bump in the polls from crying because it was an authentic moment. And I think that it's, you know, in every governor and every mayor that I interviewed talked about authenticity and they talked about how when they first ran, they felt they had to run on a t- as a toughness person, as like a, a, on a platform of, competency um, and, and to show that. But on their second campaign, they could authentically be themselves. And I, when I wrote the book, I really thought that this was Hillary's second campaign and she could authentically be herself and could be more her and like cry if she wanted. I mean, I'm not saying cry every day, but like, you know, but show emotion, show that she's a woman, show that she, and, and she has to some degree run very much more as a woman, this campaign. She talks about equal pay at every single, that's the biggest applause line of, of all of her speeches. She talks about childcare. She talks about women's issues issues and all of her in all of her stops but she doesn't fully quite connect all the dots there and, and I don't I don't know whether it's just that she doesn't feel comfortable making that full leap or whether you know it's um you know, maybe that's something she'll do in the general I mean I don't know I don't know what the deal is but it, it certainly is it's very different from her last campaign but it's not the full embrace of what it, you would might think it would be we'll be back with more here on friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this you're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Well, I mean, you do ride a good bit, and just, you guys, the book is full of just so many amazing stories. It's very, very interesting all the way through. But um, you do write a little bit about the uh, the sort of added burden that women have on the campaign trail. And you have this great story about Michelle Bachman um, when she was running in 2008. If you want to, if you could tell the audience, because it's just one of my favorites. As I was getting ready tonight, I thought about this. So Michelle Bachman, I'd heard about this um, through her, some of her campaign aides who said she was like legendarily hard to work for um, because she was super like, short-tempered and that's because she never slept um and she never slept because she wouldn't nap on the campaign bus because she was so afraid of ruining her hair and makeup and the minute she closed her eyes and like laid down she would like get raccoon eyes and mess up her hair so she would never ever sleep and so she like was kind of 
that crazy, right? Like, um, because you can't go on like three hours of sleep for years on end every night and not be kind of testy. And like, and, and it was really like hard for her staff to like anticipate. And so she, and she was so obsessed with, with making sure that her appearance was perfect that she told me this story about how there was one day in South Carolina where she was giving these stem winder speeches. It was dead summer of, of, I think it was 11, summer of 2011. And she, um, she would give an hour-long semi-winder speech outdoors in these outdoor venues in South Carolina. She'd be dripping with sweat when she finished. She would literally um, go into her, her campaign bus, shower, like wash her hair, wipe off all her makeup, change, blow dry her hair, put on all new makeup, and it would take an hour and a half after every single speech to re-put her back together again. Um, and that was like her day, right? Like getting put back together again. Think about guys. I mean, guys like sleep on the bus, like rough up their hair and they're like done, right? I mean, that's like a built-in advantage for men. They don't have to deal with like that kind of, you know, scrutiny for women that women have to deal with. They like the hair, the makeup, like feeling like you have to be constantly turned out. I mean, even Hillary Clinton, I mean, this campaign, she hasn't been, hasn't seen, you haven't seen that much of people talking about her appearance, but I remember as secretary of state, when I was covering her, when she was, in, um, we were in Burma, first time secretary of state had visited Burma, like in like 50 years, right? If ever, I think. And she had to take off her shoes to go into a temple. And, um, so Hillary is renowned for like, she has very plain, uh, fingernail polish and actually her, her manicurist works in the building and the time is time has in, in Washington. So I know her manicurist and she, she, her manicurist like picks out, she lets her manicurist pick out any color she wants. Like she's like, go wild. Cause no one will ever see my toes, but Chelsea or bill. And so she always has these really wacky color, colored toenails, right. That nobody ever sees. And so she took off her shoes to go into this temple in Burma and everyone's like, Oh my God, Hillary Clinton has like neon purple toenails. And like the only thing that came out of that, like historic trip to Burma and her meetings with like Aung San Suu Kyi was like Hillary Clinton's toenail polish. (laughs) And you're like, like, yes, that is the era that we are still living in. (laughs) Uh, I remember that. Uh, This is a question from the audience. I think dovetails into a bigger issue. It says, what do you think it will take for it not to be news for a woman to run for office, be a CEO or be in any occupation. I mean, it's one of these things in your book, you do talk about, um, I believe you quote someone as saying, you know what, women are the majority of voters. It's time we stop talking about mm-hmm. women as a, uh, as a special interest group or some sort of minority group. We actually, you know, it would be a great day, you know, when we could talk about like, what are you going to do to win the male vote? Uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of the other way around. Um, I think it's, you can, you can sort of turn the the question on its head and say, when are we going to stop talking about, it's weird that dads want to stay home, right? Like, you know, um, and I remember, um, the white house had a summit on working dads, which sounds like kind of like a paradox, right? Because there are a lot of working dads. Um, but in this case it was a summit of like, so the, the, the keynote speaker was the second baseman from second or third baseman. And I suck at sports. So I'm going to massacre that, um, from the Mets who had skipped opening day for the birth of his first child. And every sports reporter like just eviscerated this guy for like missing opening day of like baseball for the birth of his child. And it's like, God, come on. Like, you know, like there is an opening day of sports every year Mm -hmm. and your firstborn child is only born once. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and you know, and like, if you're going to mock somebody for that, that's insane, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, because you want to be a good dad and you want to like be there for the birth of your child. I mean, that's crazy. So I think when, when we can sort of when our culture can accept uh, a guy who wants to like 
have flexible hours to go home and work and, you know, and, and is not as, as someone who's manly and, you know, still like capable and still a good guy, uh, you know, as, as much as they accept a woman who's powerful and can raise her voice and not be shrill, um, then that is progress. We have two questions on a, on a similar issue. Um, I'll just read you the one, but it goes to two. Uh, how do you define gender parity in the workplace? Is it simply a 50-50 men versus women uh, or is it more nuanced? I mean, might it include other, other things like uh, race or socioeconomic status? That's a great question. I do think gender parity ultimately, I mean, and I think as, while I, I focused the book on, on, um, on critical mass. So this, uh, this idea of somewhere between 20 and 30% where women's voices are heard, I think that we should not take our eye off the ball and understand that parity is absolutely important and we should get there. Um, and that it should be our overriding goal. Um, you know, and I do think parity should come with some sort of minority makeup. I mean, like, it, I think that when our, when we, our country is reflected in its workforce by its population, then that is, that is a true reflection of us and that is who we are. When we're only represented by a group that is a minority of the population, then that's not a true reflection of us. And so, uh, and that has to permeate all levels. It can't just be like, you know, and because a lot of people say, well, our workforce is already 47% women and that's true. But two thirds of minimum wage workers and three fourths of shift workers are women. So, and when I say women coming fully into the workforce, I mean women permeating middle and senior management positions, not just being shift workers or minimum wage workers or part-time workers, because that is not true parity. That's not even critical mass. You have to have a voice in your, in your place of employment. You have to have a voice in decision-making. And that's what I mean by critical mass. And that's what I mean when I, and I think that should apply to minorities as well as women. But I mean, to be frank, as a woman of color, I will say that we are barely there for women and we're not close in a lot of sectors for women, we are like a thousand, hundred thousand miles away from minorities. I mean, like minority women are just, their representation is minuscule um, in the workforce. And, and so to, in order to really get there, I think that'll take a lot of work and a lot of attention. Um, we've got a, a sort of double question here that's interesting. If Hillary Clinton becomes president, do you think she will inspire more women to run for public office? And if Donald Trump becomes president, do you think he'll inspire more women to run for public office? <laughs> wow. Um, that's a great question. Whomever wrote that. Um, so I will say that the number one incident for women running for public office was um, Anita Hill. Uh, so and there's the movie coming out this week, uh, or this that came out this past week with HBO, um, and there were literally thousands of women in response to the Anita Hill hearings who ran for office in 1992. Um, then they, it tripled the number of women in the Senate. It uh, increased the number of women in the House by 60 percent. Uh, the women were elected in state legislatures across the country. Um, it peaked the number of women applying to law schools to 52 percent, a level that has not been seen since. We're still at 48 percent right now for female representation. In law schools, it did more that one particular like incident. This this black woman being heckled by an all white panel of men 
just did so much more to make, to incite women to run for office and to inspire women than anything else in the history of America. It's just amazing, her legacy. Um, so I hate to say it, but I actually think a Donald Trump presidency would, would incite more women to run for office than I think than I think a Hillary Clinton presidency might. That said, if you look at legacy, it's so important to have executive, um, to have uh, critical actors. And so, you know, the reason why the Senate was so powerful is because you had so many female chairs. Um, and, you know, and Nancy Pelosi, I have a chapter looking at her um, as Speaker of the House, almost single-handedly increased female representation in the House from 19% in the Democratic caucus to 36%. Um, so you have to have a critical actor, whether it's a CEO or a president or a speaker, that is willing to bring women up to, to help really foster women, to help women. Um, because if you don't, whether that CEO is a woman or a man, you're really not going to have an atmosphere where women can succeed. Now, you actually, in your book, write about what you call sort of the reverse, um, the reverse Anita Hill hearings phenomenon. And yeah. that's something that happened with regard to, uh, to you know, military governance um, yeah. once there were more women uh, on the Senate committee. So, yeah, in, uh, in 2012 and 2013, actually it was in 2013, um, there was a critical mass of women on the Senate Armed Services Committee. There were seven women on the committee of 22 23, 23. Um, and so this committee, to keep in perspective, there have been women on this committee for decades. Um, so Olympia Snow has been on this committee for a ton of years. Um, Barbara Mikulski used to be on it. And they have tried forever through Tailhook, through all kinds of scandals, Aberdeen Proving Ground, to reform the military and get them to address the problem of sexual assault in the military. And they never did anything. And they just would have these hearings and nothing ever happened. And the women in 2013 in the, in the, in the Senate Armed Services Committee in a bipartisan level, Republican, Democrat, were like, this is it. This is ridiculous. And they hauled all these generals before the committee and just shamed them. It was awesome. You should, I encourage you to go, like, <laughs> just go look up the C-SPAN hearings. It's great. Like, and there's like this all-male panel and it's like this group of like mostly women questioning them, these seven women. And there were like other women from the 20 other women in the Senate who came in as guest questioners because they wanted so much to be part of this. <laughs> and they were like, and they were like, and it, but because it's a huge problem. I mean, like in 2012, there were 23,000 unwanted sexual approaches in the military, out of which only 3,000 were reported and out of which only two to 300 were actually prosecuted. I mean, that is an ins those, those numbers are insane. And that is a large reason why a lot of women don't go into the military because it's frankly unsafe. It's scary. I have spoken to a lot of women in the military who were, would not drink water in the evenings in forward operating bases because they were afraid to go to the bathroom at night because they were probably going to get assaulted. Um, I know women who like would not, uh, who were, who were turned down for assignments as captains, um, you know, of brigades, um, because they had women in their brigades because they might have to pull over on the side of the road that, that were lined with IEDs um, to pee, right? Like if you have to be a woman, you have to go to the bathroom and how are you going to do that? Like you can't do it in a cup. And so um, there were just, I mean, like the military is a rough, rough place for women and it remains a rough place for women. Um, and it is, you know, and, and, and it is frankly the women of the Senate who are doing the most to make a better, make it a better place for women. Well, on the subject of Nancy Pelosi, and I love the chapter on Nancy Pelosi because, um, you know, there's a lot of the book talks about how women are more collaborative and empathetic. And I went to Georgia public school and I 
have know a lot of women who aren't. So uh, <laughs> you read the book and you go, I don't know if all women are very nice um, or uh, or to, or totally collaborative. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi was, uh, you know, in, in according to this chapter, of course, uh, a, a great leader and able to really accomplish a lot. And um, there's a great story about her and Barbara Lee of a great vignette that you tell uh, in the book that uh, is, is very interesting that I would love for you to share with this, you know, largely Pelosi constituency uh, here in the audience. So to be fair, Nancy Pelosi completely denies this. So I'm just saying that up front. It was the one story that her office took major exception with in the book. Um, but I have it on very good authority that this happened. Um, and so, and this is very classic Pelosi. She's very good. This is like sort of the way she functions. And she's always, she never really quite gets mad at you. And she'll never say she's mad at you. But boy, there's a colder place than hell to be on Nancy Pelosi's bad side, right? Like, and so, um, and like, so this is, Barbara Lee voted against a bill. I don't know what it I can't remember what it was. It's in the book, but um, that Nancy Pelosi basically had instructed all of the Democrats to vote for. And Nancy, uh, well, Speaker Pelosi had this plane, uh, which is like given to her by the government as speaker. And um, and it was a, it's a pretty big plane. And she used to give a ride back to California to most of the California members of Congress because it's a free ride and it's very expensive to go back and forth from California every week. And so... After Barbara Lee voted against this bill, she shows up at Andrews Air Force Base expecting her weekly ride back to California. And they're like, oh, sorry, you're not on the roster. And she's like, wait, what? And they're like, yep, see ya, bye. And the plane takes off without her. <laughs> and she's I love like, that story. <laughs> she's like, OK, I get the point. <laughs> well, our thanks to Jay Newton-Small, political reporter for Time magazine. Yeah, of course. She's also the author of the new book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. Um, we also thank our audiences here and on the radio, television, and the internet. We also wish to remind everyone here that Miss Small's new book is for sale, and she'll be signing copies following the program. I'm Melissa Kane, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 